are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. I want to welcome those uh, who are tuned in online uh, as well. Thank you for joining us for worship as we continue to uh, just be flexible through this season. We're now in uh, what is for us phase three of uh, worship gatherings together. Phase one was uh, figuring out how to worship online through Zoom. Uh, Phase two, we went to the parking lot while we also welcomed in people online. Now we're in phase three, and we are grateful uh, that Crestway Baptist Church has allowed us to use their auditorium uh, to gather for worship. Um, And we will continue to to worship online as well to those who need to stay home uh, for the sake of, of health. Um, and just uh, safety. So we'll continue to do that. We are excited uh, about phase four, which is moving into our dedicated facility, a facility that's dedicated specifically for Emmanuel Church. It's right here uh, on this premises, uh, right to my left, your right. We need about five weeks or so to finish that. So we're going to be in this setting for about five weeks, and then we're going to migrate over there. We hope to, in the next couple of weeks, be able to provide uh, some tours Uh, For those of you who want to see the progress uh, and get a glimpse of of where we're headed. Uh, So more info on that will be coming. Uh, And while I'm up here, let me just make a couple of announcements. Uh, We do have a couple of things coming up. Uh, One is that we have a members meeting coming up uh, next Thursday. I believe that's, uh, what's the date on that? Is that July 8th at 6.30 p.m.? Uh, We're going to meet in person in the fellowship hall right here at Crestway, which is uh, directly below us. Um, So if you're able to come to that uh, in person, that would be wonderful. Um, Also, we will do a live feed of that as well. So if you need to stay home, I know 6.30 is getting a little late and you might need to stay home for the sake of kids. Uh, But but members of Emmanuel would love for you to tune in uh, to that. We're going to be talking about several things. Uh, that are that are important, uh, and some of those things will be communicated through an email before that meeting. Uh, so be looking for that. But um, these are always really special times as a as a covenant membership to come together. So just uh, if you're able, come to that. Uh, second thing that I'll mention is we have a couple of fellowships um, that are happening uh, in July. Uh, July 9th for the ladies, July 30th for the guys. These are times simply to come together and to enjoy one another. Normally in the summers. Uh, we're able to, to do some, some fellowships in homes, throw parties, um, get together and just enjoy one another. COVID's kind of interrupted all of that. But we're going to try to do at least one of those for, for guys and then for ladies um, just to, to be together and to enjoy one another. So um, July 30th at 7 for the guys. Um, again, that'll be in the fellowship hall. We're probably going to pull out some cornhole in the parking lot. And, um, and just, just have some fun together. Ladies, uh, July 9th, same deal. Uh, just a time of fellowship. So make sure and get those on your calendar. Uh, last thing is uh, if you're a guest with us, uh, either in person or tuned in online, uh, I just want to thank you for joining us for worship. We're honored uh, to have you with us and would love to meet you. And so the, the most streamlined way that we can think to do this with having both an online uh, crowd and uh, an in-person crowd is if you are a guest with us, the easiest way to help us connect with you is for you to, to text uh, Emmanuel Guest. So you can just text the, the phrase Emmanuel Guest, Guest to the number 205-858-0300. 205-858-0300.
Just text Emmanuel Guest, and then one of our staff members can follow up with you. We can get you any information that you'd like uh, to obtain from the church. And uh, we would love to just to meet you, to learn your name, uh, and, to, and to tell you more about ourselves. So uh, please text us, and uh, we would love to follow up with you. Um, we are uh, beginning a new series uh, this evening uh, in the book of Esther. And so if you have your Bible... Open up to the book of Esther. Esther is in the Old Testament. It comes right after Ezra and Nehemiah. So Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Um, and we are going to read uh, just a couple of verses this evening as we begin this series. Um, so Esther chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 is what we're going to read together this evening. Esther chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. God's word says... This, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. This is the word of the Lord. The book of Esther tells this incredible story of the mysterious providence of God at work to rescue his people from the murderous plan of a man named Haman to eradicate the Jews. And this story happens through the most unlikely of heroes and in the most surprising of ways. It's, it's, it's really, it's an amazing story if you've ever read it before. And, and so what I would like to do for us this evening as we begin a, a journey through the story of Esther is, is just to give an overview of, of the story. Uh, many of you are, are maybe unfamiliar with the story of Esther. Or perhaps you're, you're vaguely familiar with it, but the version of the story of Esther you have been given is more of a VeggieTales veggie version of, of the story. Uh, sometimes the book of Esther is told uh, as if it were like a season of The Bachelor Persian edition, um, where, where there is this beauty contest and this new queen's appointed, and it's kind of this romantic Disney princess version of the story of Esther. And, and the reality is that the story is much darker and more complex than what is often told. And so I'd like to spend some time here uh, in, in this first week just introducing the story to us, kind of framing it up, providing an overview and some context so that we can understand what, what is happening. I also want to encourage you this week uh, to take time to, to read the story of Esther. Um, it's, it's not that long to read. And, and maybe more than any other book of Scripture, it, it literally reads like, like a story. There's not a ton of theological interpretation. There's not a ton of, of, of the narrator kind of giving us these side uh, explanations going on. It literally just reads like a fantastic story. It reads like a divine comedy. So I want to encourage you uh, to take time this week. Just read through 
the book of Esther so that you're ready for this series as we dive in. Um, as we get going this evening, what I want to do is uh, provide just a little historical background uh, that, that kind of catches us up to, to the events that take place uh, in the story of Esther. In, in my personal Bible reading lately, I've been in the, the book of Jeremiah. And, and one of the major themes in the book of Jeremiah is the impending threat of exile that, that God's people are facing because of their unrepentant waywardness. The, the, the people of God were obstinately living in idolatry and injustice. If you read the prophet Jeremiah, he is, he is pleading with them to see their errant ways and to repent of their, their, their uh, idolatrous worship and to repent of not living in, in the law of God and in the ways of God, loving their neighbor as themselves. And so what Jeremiah does is he, he, he prophesies to the people and through the prophecies of Jeremiah, God is, is graciously and he's patiently and he's repeatedly warning them that if they don't repent of their ways, he's going to allow a foreign enemy to come in to their land and to take them out of their land into captivity. God had given the promised land to the people of God uh, through, first he made a promise to Abraham and then through Abraham came the covenant people of God, the, the people of Israel and, and through Joshua, God led them into the land. He had given them the covenant through Moses and they were to be the people of God and he was going to be their God, but they were supposed to live according to the covenant stipulations that Yahweh had given them. And he had warned them that if they did not walk in his ways, if they refused to walk in his ways, that he would remove them out of the land just as much as he had taken them into it. And unfortunately, Israel did not listen. And so beginning around 605 BC, the Babylonians began to invade the land of Judea. And in 586 BC, the city of Jerusalem was completely ransacked. King Nebuchadnezzar sent his troops in and the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. The walls were beaten down. The temple was, was looted and, and then torn down. And in the book of Daniel, another uh, book of, of God's word, we, we read the story of, of Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were taken into exile by King Nebuchadnezzar. What Jeremiah had warned about came true. But he also prophesied to the exiles who were now living in Babylon that eventually God would bring them back. And so around 560 BC, what happens is that the Persian Empire sort of comes out of nowhere. Uh, the Babylonians were kind of ruling, and then all of a sudden, this Persian empire that nobody was paying attention to grew strong, and they began to move throughout the region and to take over the territory. And so the Persians expanded their empire literally from India to Turkey. They took over the entire region. And it's under the rule of Cyrus, the Persian king Cyrus, that the Jews were, were allowed to begin to make their way back to Jerusalem. First under the leadership of Zerubbabel, and then under Ezra, and then under Nehemiah, God's people began 
to go back to their land. In fact, we read these words. These are the opening words from the book of Ezra. It says, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it into writing. And this is what King Cyrus of Persia said. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you May his God be with him, and may he go to Jerusalem and Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a freewill offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. So the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, along with the priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit God had aroused, prepared to go up and rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. This is an amazing work of God where a foreign king, a pagan king, is moved by God to allow the people of God, the, the Jewish people, to go back to Jerusalem. They're sent with supplies to begin rebuilding God's temple. This is an amazing act of God. And in 516 B.C., the temple was rebuilt and dedicated to the Lord. God was bringing his people out of exile, and there's now a physical building for them to gather in and to worship him again. There's a physical restoration taking place, and there's also a spiritual renewal that began to take place in Jerusalem. The, 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 uh, the scribe Ezra finds the law and he reads it aloud to the people. And when they hear the law of God, they weep aloud and they cry out to God and they repent to God. This, this amazing revival is happening among the people of God. You fast forward a few years and 600 miles away in the Persian capital city of Susa, which is modern-day Iran, events were transpiring that threatened to completely undo the renewal that was happening in Jerusalem. Cyrus's grandson, Xerxes, was now the king. And he's quite the character, as we're going to learn next week. And in 474 B.C., through the manipulative persuasion of the prime minister in Persia, Haman, King Xerxes issues an edict to annihilate the Jewish people. In other words, Haman was conspiring a genocide of the Jewish people because of his hatred for one Jew in particular named Mordecai. And he gets the king to sign off on his corrupt and wicked and evil plan to have the Jewish people destroyed. And so everything that was happening in Jerusalem, everything that was happening to rebuild and restore the ancient ruins is now threatened to be undone. And the people of God have no idea because this conspiracy is happening 600 miles away in the city of Susa. However, unbeknownst to Xerxes and to Haman, Xerxes' new wife, Esther, is herself a Jew. And so is her uncle Mordecai. And this is really the climax of the drama in the story of Esther. As Esther learns of the edict 
to, to exterminate her people. She, she has this inner wrestling moment where she has to decide whether or not she will continue to hide her identity in the name of self-preservation or whether she will courageously reveal her ethnicity in hopes of saving her people. And the most famous line we read a moment ago, the most famous line in the story is in Esther chapter 4, where Mordecai says to Esther, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And in response, Esther determines that she's going to act, stating, if I perish, I perish. And so after fasting for three days, she approaches the king with a plan to reveal the wickedness of Haman and to rescue her people, the Jews. One of the major themes that we'll see in the story of Esther is, is the theme of reversals. It's the, there's this amazing theme of reversal in, in the story of Esther. And as the drama unfolds, the fate of the Jews becomes instead the fate of Haman, who ends up dying on the very gallows that he had built to kill Mordecai. God's people are spared, and they celebrate a new festival called Purim. It's a festival that the Jewish people still celebrate to this day. In fact, historically, the Jewish people love the book of Esther. They love this story, while the reality is that Christians throughout church history have struggled to know what to do with the story of Esther. Esther is not mentioned at all by the early church fathers. Uh, the reformer John Calvin, to our knowledge, never wrote or spoke a sermon from the book of Esther. Martin Luther flat hated the book of Esther. And I think some of this uncertainty or avoidance of this story stems from the fact that uh, for one, the narrator in the book of Esther doesn't really give us commentary or theological interpretation. He simply tells a story. It reads, it reads like, like a divine comedy, which is great for entertainment, but hard, I think, for interpretation. There, there's no mention of the temple. There's no mention of Jerusalem or any cultic practice in the entire story, except for the fasting. There are no miracles in this story. So in other books of the Old Testament, we have God parting the waters of the Red Sea. We have God making the sun to stand still. None of that in the story of Esther. And perhaps most surprising of all, God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Parents, if you need a fun way to keep your kids occupied for a few minutes here, Give your kids a Bible, turn to the book of Esther, and ask them to find God's name in the book of Esther. It might keep them occupied for a few minutes. They won't find it because it's not there. God's name is nowhere to be found on the pages of the book of Esther. And what's more, the protagonists of this story are also problematic. Esther and Mordecai, the heroes of this story, both have Persian names, even though they're Jewish people. In fact, the name Mordecai is named after 
the pagan god Marduk. Many theologians think that Esther's name is also tied to a pagan god, the goddess Ishtar. Here are two Jewish characters with pagan names. What's up with that? It seems as if Mordecai and Esther are compromised individuals living in a pagan world. They have assimilated to Persian life. Why are Mordecai and Esther still in Susa 60-something years after the Jews have been allowed to go back to the capital city of Jerusalem? Did they not want to go back? This story raises all kinds of these types of questions, and it's for these sorts of reasons that many in church history have not known what to do with the book of Esther, and so they just shied away from it. And so why study it? Why would we decide as a church to go through this book? I just want to offer two reasons this evening, and this will really frame up our time, and I'll be quick. The first reason why I think we should study the book of Esther is the book of Esther is going to, in many ways, serve as a mirror. The book of Esther is going to serve us like a mirror. Because like Esther and Mordecai, as followers of Jesus, we live in exile. We, we are exiles living in a foreign land. I know that's probably an inappropriate thing to say uh, on the cusp of the 4th of July. But this world is not our home. This nation is not our home. We belong to the kingdom of God. We're kingdom people. And we live, we, we live as kingdom people in the kingdom of man. And life in exile can be dark and confusing. If the past 12 weeks has revealed anything to us, it is that the life that we are living and the land that we are living in is confusing and very complex oftentimes. I think so many of us are so confused right now as to what it looks like to live faithfully as exiles and sojourners, followers of God in our nation, in our world. I think this book is going to help us as we, as we try to begin to answer that question, it's going to help us navigate what it looks like to live faithfully as exiles in a foreign land. The reality is that like Mordecai and like Esther, you and I are also problematic characters in the story of God who have been way too immersed and assimilated into our culture. Some of us are too comfortable in modern-day Susa. And just like they took on Persian names and a Persian way of life, we, we have been absorbed into the culture. And so many things of the culture have, have been absorbed into us. And they're embedded deeply in us, affecting us and controlling us more than we even realize. Many of these things we aren't even aware of. I'm, uh, right now I'm reading a book uh, by John Mark Comer titled The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's a fantastic book. I would highly recommend it. And in, in the book, Comer is making this, what I think is a compelling argument, that, that most of us live hurried, 
anxious lives and that this, this, the speed at which we're living life is damaging to our relationship with God. Comer quotes Ronald Rollheiser, who, who says this. He says, today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It is not that we have anything against God, against depth and spirit. We would like these. It is just that we are habitually too preoccupied. He goes on to quote John Ortberg, who says this. He says, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. You relate to any of that? I read that and I go, how did we get so distracted? In a word, culture. We are cooked in a culture of no rest for the weary capitalism, constant entertainment, and smartphones that have combined to make slow, unhurried time with Jesus almost impossible. How sobering would it be for us to look at the time we spend on our smartphones versus the time we spend in prayer? To look at the time that we spend scrolling Instagram compared to the time we spend in the Word of God. Sabbath has become a lost practice to us. Not because God's Word has changed, but because we live in our own modern day Susa. This is just one example, by the way, of how the culture is seeping into us, affecting us, changing us. We are problematic characters like Mordecai, like Esther. Exile has gotten to us. It has gotten into us. I think about what Jesus prayed for the disciples in John 17 when he said, Father, I pray that not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. Jesus sent his disciples into the world, but prayed that they would not become of the world, But the reality is, I think for all of us as disciples of Jesus, that some of the world has gotten into us. And what the story of Esther is going to do for us is it's going to serve as a mirror to help us to begin to see this. And my hope, my hope as we go through this series is that like Esther, we can find some clarity for our lives and begin to courageously lean into our true identity. I think that's what God wants for us that we would discover our true identity and lean into that so that we can live courageously for God. Jesus prayed, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That's what I'm asking God to do for us in this study. Sanctify us in his truth. I think a second reason why this book is incredibly timely, and this is going to sound strange, I think a second reason why this, this book is timely is because that on the surface, God is missing. On the surface, God is missing. And I think this 
also mirrors our situation today. The book of Esther will teach us to trust in God when he seems absent. Philosopher Charles Taylor says that we live in a secular age. And by secular, what he means is that the default way most of us see the world is with disenchanted eyes. We live in a world in which it is hard to believe that God is actually near. We, we, we don't wake up expecting miracles to happen, most of us. We're, we're kind of natural-born skeptics because that's the air that we breathe. And we go through our days without acknowledging God's presence. Similar to the book of Esther, God seems nowhere to be found. But when you read the story at a slower pace, and when you look a little closer, what you see is that there are these timely coincidences throughout the story that are anything but coincidental. Though there are no miracles in this story, there are these remarkable coincidences that happen way too often for God to not be at work behind the scenes. And then when you zoom out and you see the bigger picture of what's happening, the presence of God comes into full focus. The book of Esther really only makes sense when it's set within the unfolding redemptive historical storyline, right? It really only makes sense within the corpus of Scripture. When we see what's happening 600 miles away in Jerusalem and all that God is doing there, and then when we understand the threat, that the imminent threat from Haman, the, the, the threat of uh, completely destroying the, the Jews, we see that God was at work the whole time rescuing God's people without them even knowing it. The story of Esther is like a missing puzzle piece of God's unfolding plan of redemption. And what this shows us is that God is always doing more than we can see. God is always doing more than we can see. When he feels far away, he's doing thousands of things that we're completely unaware of. The story of Esther teaches us to trust in the hidden providence of God. The reality is that some of us might find ourselves asking in this season, where in the world is God? Where is God in COVID? Where is God in the death of Breonna Taylor? Where is God in the rioting and the looting of our cities? Where is God in, in the loss of my job? Where is God in my discouragement and depression in the dark night of the soul? Where is God in my trauma? Where is God in my tumultuous marriage? Where is God? And what the story of Esther will teach us is that he's up to more than we can even imagine. He is nearer than we even know. I, I, I love the way uh, the song Waymaker puts it. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. God mysteriously and he marvelously works in a complexity and mess and even in the contradictions of our lives to accomplish his redemptive plans. That's what this story is going to teach us. And he'll even use problematic, complex, compromised characters like you 
in me, in that plan, if we're willing to be used. And so here are two ways that we can begin to pray as we begin this journey in the book of Esther. And I want to encourage each of us to pray these prayers. Prayer number one, God, begin to show me some of the ways that living in exile is affecting me. And through this series, I pray that you would sanctify me in your truth. Reveal blind spots. Help me to repent of those and to walk in my identity as your chosen son or daughter. I want us to pray that. God, show me my blind spots. Help me to repent and help me to find my identity in you and to begin to live in that identity. And then number two, God, help me to trust in you even when you seem far away. Help me to know that you are up to more than meets the eye and that you are faithfully bringing your good purposes to pass. Let's pray those two things as we begin this series. Why don't we pray for those now? Father, your word tells us that we know all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Lord, you're always at work. You, you never sleep nor slumber. Your providential hand is governing at all times. You are faithful to all of your promises. You are a provider and you are a protector. Lord, teach us to trust in you, especially when we can't see you. Lord, I pray that through this series, you would do a work in our hearts. Show us the ways that we've been impacted by the culture in which we live. The ways in which we've been compromised. The ways in which we're living according to the pattern of this age instead of being conformed to the image of your son. God, we pray that you would make us more like your son, Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.